final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Welcome to Molded Masculinity. I'm Tom McFarland. I'm here with Philip Sipe this week, and as you might have guessed from that intro that may or may not have played, uh, and my cup of uh, uh, um, Earl Grey tea that you cannot see, today we are talking about Star Trek. (laughs) Star Trek captains in particular, but we may also veer into a few other characters as well. Yeah, we sort of offhandedly mentioned uh, Star Trek in in one episode earlier and uh, got some comments from people suggesting that we do one like focused on it and, you know, obviously related to the topic of this podcast as well. And uh, I don't need a good, I don't need much of an excuse to (laughs) talk about Star Trek. Uh, I really like it. And uh, so, yeah. Here we are. Agreed, and the same here. And I mean, honestly, I think uh, I think Star Trek is very instrumental in the molding of who I am as an individual. It, I think, the purpose of Star Trek is to mold characters and society and individuals. It's kind of one of the uh, core uh, science fiction. Uh, franchises that really sticks to like I think it's a science fiction franchise that really sticks to the core idea of being something that's supposed to intentionally shape and mold the future Um, part of that future I think that it's explicitly trying to shape and mold is masculinity and I think through looking at because Star Trek is so enormously multi-generational I think we see a lot of different generations of Star Trek trying to shape masculinity and it tell being very telling about what masculinity has meant, what positive masculinity has meant to people in different eras and decades and centuries for that matter. Um, Because starting in the late 1950s with uh, (laughs) Captain Pike for one episode and then, uh, you know, as we all know, Captain uh, James T. Kirk, and then ending today, currently, with Captain Pike. So I think, I, I, I'm i not going to start with Captain Pike, because again, he was literally one episode, well, aside to say that he was the father figure for James T. Kirk in the initial uh, Star Trek original series, in my opinion. Like, and I, and now, TOS wasn't quite my Star Trek, so... I can't profess to in any way be an expert on it, but that was the vibe I got was that like the Pike was kind of, and we see that replicated in the new movies uh, that show Kirk. But I think also in the, um, it wasn't even the first episode. It was the, um, what do you call that? The episode that comes out before the actual show is for real, for real. Like the pilot. Yeah. The pilot episode. I always felt like I got kind of a vibe like that was, Captain Kirk's commanding officer that like shaped who he was and therefore was kind of an adult father figure. And so diving into who Captain Kirk is, I think 
is valuable. Um, and I think says a lot about masculinity in the 1960s, a lot of mixed things about masculinity in the 1960s. Uh, what do you have to say about it? Um, so I am basing some of my take on a thing I read about sort of the brief history of manhood as illustrated by Star Trek captains and my own uh, mixture of that and my own thoughts. And certainly I find that, you know, Captain Kirk as a character is almost childish, or at least borderline childish. I think that's somewhat a product of, you know, the times, um, you know, it's no, uh, anyone who's spent any time looking into it knows that Star Trek was started by Gene Roddenberry, who was, um, you know, like everyone, a complicated person, but um, certainly um, was, you know, as reaching the tail end of the 60s, someone looking at a lot of the progressivism of that decade um, and looking to demonstrate, I think, what things could look like. And it's no accident that the bridge uh, cast reflects that. The two people at the helm are a Russian and a Japanese man, two nations that the U.S. was extremely contentious with, um, specifically since at the time Russia met Soviet Union. Uh, and uh, Multiple cast uh, members fought in World War II, so... Yep, and the Japanese people were obviously uh, part of that World War II conflict as well. Um, and so, and uh, it is certainly no accident uh, that a black woman was the main science officer, uh, or I think she was science officer, regardless, she was- um, Communications officer. Communications officer, that's right, that's right. Sorry, I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not as familiar with the original series, but it, uh, I listened to a, um, a interview with um, the actress that played Uhura, and um, I know that like she was um, extremely hesitant initially to take the part um, to be a black woman as an officer in the '60s on a big TV show was a big deal, um, and it would inevitably mean a great deal of potential harassment and hate from those who were not a fan of that sent her away specifically. Uh, I believe I remember if I'm remembering the interview correctly, uh, Gene Roddenberry got Martin Luther King Jr. to come and basically beg her to take the role because he thought it was really, really important that a black woman be one of the main officers of the staff on the bridge. So I say all that to say, Star Trek is imagined to be this sort of like futuristic communist utopia where, you know, race and gender and nationality are all things that um, are unimportant uh, aesthetic features of some kind. They don't mention it. They don't go like, you know, like, oh, it's so great that you're, you know, black and an officer or whatever. Like it's, it's just like treated as obvious and normal that they would be there and no one says anything about it. Um, I think uh, Star Trek might have even been the it's either it is either the first or one of the first interracial uh, kisses. It is uh, the shown. first. Yeah, I thought it was the first, but at that flickering moment of doubt, you know, so like a lot about Star Trek is um, 
about portraying an ideal thing. And all that as background now going to the masculinity part of it, which is that like um, in the late sixties, there was this kind of idea of like the flower child. Um, and, you know, they, there was this kind of, uh, it was kind of this backlash from like the, the warrior slash factory man of the fifties. That was like, kind of like the, the thing that was like coming out of the war that was kind of like the portrayed as like kind of the ideal masculine. And so it was this kind of like chaotic, uh, uh, sort of personality of James Kirk was very much in defiance of that very stoic, rugged, uh, you know, male image. So for his time, he certainly inherited uh, a lot of features of masculinity that we have criticisms of. I do not think Kirk was a um, perhaps ideal portrayal of masculinity or anything, but the character was certainly written to stand against uh, uh, certain big aspects of traditional masculinity at the time. So, you know, he was uh, emotional, a little bit wild. He had relationships with non-white people uh, <laughs> and was fine with that. And uh, he was a little freewheeling with his relationships and didn't commit to one single monogamous marriage relationship. Yep, um, and he often was portrayed as a juxtaposed to Spock, who did represent in some ways some aspects of the traditional masculine bit, uh, attempting, although uh, sometimes failing, to be emotionless and stoic and um, purely logical, purely reason. Um, and a lot of a lot of the relationship, the exploration of masculinity in the original series is done between Kirk and Spock. Um, and so, yeah, and uh, Bones also kind of contributes to this too. The Doctor, uh, Spock was kind of like the pure logic, and Bones is kind of like the like, you know, be reasonable, common sense type guy. And so, like the the tensions between Kirk, who was kind of the emotional center, and Bones and Spock, who were kind of like the rationality center, was like a whole exploration there that was like very interesting, but certainly is more obviously a product of the '60s than. Uh, now here in 2022 than perhaps it was at the time where he probably felt extremely subversive. Yeah. And I mean, like, it's like with, you know, what I just mentioned about his uh, kind of non-monogamous tendencies at the same time, also like you see in a lot of instances in the 1960s where uh, writing male characters, they try to be a bit more free love and they really just get real, um, misogynistic and uh, um, chauvinistic and kind of the writing of things, which is something that came up with him. Uh, and, and also, but, but I mean, that is like that part aside, like there's definitely a few key elements of Kirk that I remember kind of standing against the grain of what I had been kind of ro risen, like taught to believe were like kind of 
fundamental things of masculinity. One of those being how frequently he is a little bit tortured by a decision that he makes. He makes bad decisions and then acknowledges that those are bad decisions and then kind of lets that really eat at him at the end of an episode where he's like, that was, wow, there was no good way out of that. And like, I'm going to have some PTSD over this. Now, the problem in the show, because of the episodic nature of the 19, of 1960s television, is that then we never return to that. Like, his brother dies, and it's a very sad moment, and we never talk about his brother again. Like, there's some things of that nature that are, you know, but that's just flaws of 60s television. Uh, and another element that bounces off of what you're talking about that I remember very well, and this is more of the Captain Kirk that I think I know better is the Captain Kirk of the motion pictures of the all of the movies that came out through the uh, 1970s into the 19 late 1980s or early 1990s and there, there's this there's particularly there's one of those movies that it begins where he's doing this whole like mountain climbing thing where he's like trying to climb a mountain in Yellowstone and it's very clearly like a uh, he's aging and he's kind of having this uh, existential struggle with the fact that he's becoming an older man who isn't quite as capable of the things that he was when he was younger. And like, you know, the, like Starfleet wants to make him an admiral and he isn't ready to sit behind a desk. Uh, McCoy buys him a pair of glasses for his birthday and he's really mad at that. And like, I don't need glasses. Um, and, and like in this whole like unnecessary feat of trying to climb this mountain, like Spock like, comes up on a jetpack and is like, it, it's the 24th century. What are you doing, bud? You don't have to climb mountains. Like we have things to go do. Let's go do them. Uh, there's like a conflict there that I think is kind of, there's a couple of things there. I think one is him like trying to force this brand of masculinity that is the rugged mountain man, like never fails. Age doesn't affect you. And he has to come to terms with that. And by the end of that movie, and by the end of really his uh, role in the movie series of that era, is him coming to terms with the fact that he has just reached a different point in his life, and that eventually it's the end of his life, and he has to pass the torch onto Captain Picard. And I think that whole thing and what that means to come to terms with that like the things that you cope with as you age uselessness like like those feelings of being useless not actually being useless but feeling like you are because you can't do the things that you used to be able to do but you have a whole new role to fulfill is all it's a difficult transition and i really enjoyed that it kind of explored that to me that exploration was one of the most meaningful ones of the captain kirk era um that being said, I'm also very biased because, again, I didn't get super sucked into the actual TV series. But Yeah. Yeah, like I said, I'm not... Uh, I, I didn't watch a ton of the original series as a kid, so um, I have less thoughts on Kirk specifically other than, like, uh, you know, a, a smattering of things. So it's possible if I were to go and, like, watch it all religiously that I would have a slightly more nuanced take of it. But certainly, I think that uh there's a lot of interesting things to look at at kirk um when it comes to his um you know juxtaposition uh against the culture of the late 60s but i don't feel confident enough to make a lot of uh assertions around that currently so let's talk about the one we are very, I think, both very competent in talking about, and I think well, both you brought the right very tea, excited so. to get to, yeah, is the big letter P, the bald man who was the sexiest man of, I think, 2000-something. It was when I was a kid. 
Was he really? Did he really get like the sexiest man award? Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna Google this while uh, while we go forth. Um, d- don't like uh, be stopped by this, but uh, yeah, he definitely was uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. Was the sexiest man of 2017? No, no, sorry, no, that was not him. I, I don't think he's actually won it, but I think around 2017 he like. Okay, yeah, so no, apparently it's Ryan Reynolds wanted him crowned sexiest man alive. I, for some reason, remember in my teens him being on a list of the sexiest man alive, and I was very confused because as a teenager, I couldn't comprehend how a bald man could be seen as sexy. That is a fundamentally um, flawed perception of things. Many people find him sexy, and the hair that you have on your head does not define your sexiness. But as a teenager, you've got a lot of, you know, mental blocks and and processing errors and things you haven't quite gotten to unpacking. Um, But yeah, I I think um, the introduction... uh, Uh, He won Sexiest Man on TV in 1992. Aha! Wow, I was not old enough to remember that, but I'll pretend like I was. (laughs) (laughs) I was four. (laughs) I was two. (laughs) But hey, I mean, no lies detected. Especially in 1992, like him early in his career, it is a thing where I am very shocked when I start, every time I start a rewatch of The Next Generation, I'm like, holy, Patrick Stewart is so much younger. Um, Yeah. Because he's like somebody who like kind of stopped aging midlife, and uh, so it's just weird when you see him younger. But anyways, yeah, I, I think Patrick Stewart was somebody who very much influenced my personal perceptions of masculinity um in some slightly toxic ways i think i absorbed a lot of um beliefs about stoicism from picard that i don't even think were necessarily the intent of the depiction of picard because as an adult when i watch the next generation i don't see the stoic picard that i kind of have built in my mind as a kid um, because he is very emotional. I mean, he's an, he's he's an actor with an incredible emotional range. We see this in the like you know in the the the, the six lights episode uh, where where he's being held prisoner by the Cardassians and he's tortured and um, he has like kind of an emotional breakdown. We see this in his emotion with dealing with uh, Lacutus of Borg still kind of being like the, the hive mind still being in his head. Um, we see a lot of this, but I think a lot of his interactions with his crew are a lot more sanitized and a lot more professional in business. He doesn't try to get as friendly and as one-on-one um, personal with his crew as a lot of later captains that we'll talk about uh, do. And I think that kind of led me to... Because like one of my big kind of toxicities in life has been when I enter like entering the workforce, I very much entered the workforce kind of seeing one at least I guess wanting to see the world as being like Star Trek. And I walked into every job like I just got my first job at Starfleet. And a lot of the ideas of professionalism I had came right from Captain Picard. And a lot of ideas I had about how, like, no, I have to keep my professional relationships separate from my personal relationships, and we are a work acquaintance, I can't easily be friends with you, I need to have these barriers, 
were at times a little bit toxic, also at times very healthy. I think there's a lot of health in having that, but it also kept me from being able to have some much more functional work relationships with people because I tried to keep them out of my life. Like, you know, you don't need to know my life. I am here to be an officer. <laughs> like, so yeah. Yeah, I feel yeah. I think that like a little bit that Picard emotes in a, he, he certainly has a stoic a affect to him. But I do think that like he emotes a little bit more than he often gets credit for. Um, he isn't like, he doesn't wear his emotions on his sleeves, certainly not in comparison to Captain Kirk. <laughs> but um, it's very telling through his actions that he deeply cares about not just uh, doing the right thing in some sort of abstract moral sense, but also like, cares for the people under his command and he treats that responsibility with with both the logical and the emotional weight that it deserves um he spends a great deal of effort uh and resources on allowing data to explore his own humanity and find you know and figuring out like what he is and uh what he wants to be <laughs> and um absorbs a lot of behaviors in there that would probably not be tolerated from an average person. Uh, so I, I feel like um, he is a lot more emotional than sometimes he gets credit for, but um, he certainly does have a little bit of a, uh, of that effect. And I think it stems partially from the fact that he has a big defining feature of his character is that he has a like very well, defined and somewhat rigid moral code generally it's like i know what the right thing to do is and if i don't know what the right thing to do is like i just need to uh, understand more like the only ambiguity is in me not understanding the situation better um, because he has a set of principles that he lives by and he will move hell and high water to match those principles um and a little sub theme is the conflict that he comes into a lot and when, when his moral code conflicts a little bit with what seems to be the obvious right thing to do um, and how he struggles with that. I think that that particular conflict is really heavily explored with um, Captain Janeway in particular, who I think is actually an interesting uh, character to talk about in this context as well. I'm looking forward to getting to that for a lot of I'm sure obvious reasons, but uh, um, yeah, there there is this theme of like, oh, you know, when you have a, you know, an important moral code to stick to, what do you do when that moral code conflicts with the obvious thing in front of you to do? And sometimes, you know, there's the, oh, I need to gather more information. Maybe I don't understand this thing correctly. It only seems obvious. Uh, but, you know, then there's the the other side of that, where sometimes you take a bunch of time figuring stuff out, only to figure out the obvious thing was correct, and now you've wasted a bunch of time, and it's a little bit too late to do the right thing in the way that you should have done it. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think... Um... I think one of the things that I found very interesting about Picard, and I, I was definitely kind of processing Picard at the same time as Janeway, and something that I always thought was something that was very different between the two of them, was that a lot of Picard's 
conflicts of that nature especially kind of came from a lot of interactions where Starfleet was not living up to its codes and uh, what what's all, all of what Starfleet was supposed to be. It wasn't living up to his character. He had a moral and uh, ethical responsibility and Starfleet was acting in a way that didn't match that and it was how he like how that interacted and how he had to deal with that and i always found that very interesting and and i i did enjoy one of the things that i enjoy about uh the next generation kind of star star trek iteration is that in the next generation starfleet isn't necessarily utopian itself Starfleet has a lot of problems. This is where we start seeing the Mar the Maquis develop, where we start seeing Starfleet do making a lot of decisions that are very colonial, very problematic, and uh, there's like we start seeing a lot of like corruption and problems in Starfleet. The idea of the the actual utopia is from almost like the Enterprise itself, because at this point the Enterprise isn't just a ship on a five year mission. The Enterprise is a a city in space of its own like the galaxy class starship is an entire city with families on board and he has this whole new consideration that is basically being a mayor he has families living on board and like whole operations happening like you know schools and things going on board that he has to take in consideration so he can't just like yeet the enterprise into a battle and at the same time, sometimes Starfleet is trying to make him yeet the Enterprise into a battle um, and, and a lot of other things going on that he's got to kind of contend with. Meanwhile, I think Janeway is in that same era of Starfleet, except she's removed 100% from it. So she's on the other side of the galaxy. Now she has to deal with a lot of the kind of people who are a product of the problems in Starfleet. So this is where you get Tom Paris, who spent most of his life, uh, well, not most of his life, but his past couple of years in prison because of decisions he made uh, through Starfleet. You've got Chakotay and the entire Maquis crew who are all uh, revolutionary rebels uh, trying to uh, liberate their people uh, uh, under kind of the oppression of Starfleet. You've got... Just all these other things going on. Um, it, it's like taking all the big stuff we were talking about in The Next Generation and kind of boiling it all down to like, okay, what if we just put all this on one very small ship and just yeet it across the galaxy and now they have to deal with their problems themselves? Along with like also dealing with other problems that they're encountering along this journey and the difference where there's not like families living aboard the ship. Sorry, I kind of started to transition to Janeway, maybe a little early, but we can still talk about Picard if we need to. Oh, sure. I was good. The last thing I was going to mention about Picard was there is this uh, to to bring it to a little bit of some cultural context. I think another small detail is that he's French, mm -hmm. uh, which is not an irrelevant decision in the late '80s, early '90s, where there was this sense of Frenchmen being. Uh, I think the modern term for this would be like soy boy, like effeminate men, which I mean is obviously like a toxic idea, but um, he also very, like he leans into that. He drinks his little cups of tea and he does like fencing and he, he very much is like 
I think it was one of the things that drew me to Picard was that he almost embodied everything that my culture and the kind of rough country Midwestern culture told me was effeminate things in men. Here was this incredibly masculine man who did all of these things and gave zero fucks what anybody thought about it. Yeah. So there, uh, and you know, you know, this was, I remember like, there was this like weird cultural push that I called them like freedom fries instead of French fries. And like, there was this like weird, I don't know entirely what it was related to, but there was this kind of like weird anti-French. Uh, I will say a lot of that comes with something else we can talk about shortly, but a lot of that came from 9-11 and more specifically when we invaded Iraq in 2002 and France refused to support us. Yeah, but I think the freedom fries bit was happening prior to 9-11 even, but it may have been, I'm not sure. Uh, I was young, so I, and I haven't like really detailed researched it. Um, but yeah, that I think, um, yes, there is an aspect of Picard that is like just a guy who is so assured in every way, morally, uh, with his own identity, um, that he does a bunch of stuff uh and it's a very star trek thing to do is to uh have someone who is very subversive for the time that that captain exists in uh in a way that isn't like look at me i'm so subversive rather it's just a thing that they do and they do it with confidence while being so obviously not the stereotype that is tried to portray there that um it sort of passively just puts a lie to the to the cultural myth of like you know drinking tea and doing certain things or like you know sissy things to do or whatever like it's just like i mean it's not <laughs> like i have a very obvious example of like one of the manliest characters i can think of on television right now doing that and making it look just awesome <laughs> yeah 100 percent. and it was definitely something that for me was incredibly and, and this is something that i think is important to talk about in the context of our podcast and everything we talk about here i found it incredibly liberating to see this masculine uh character who was vastly respected and everybody kind of looked up to as a masculine character on the ship do these kind of things that I had in many other contexts been told were effeminate things that real men didn't do um, a part of, I mean, that, that part of that is just like it, it was reading and literature and that he was this very smart person about classical culture and classical music and, and, and drinking wine and making wine and, and all of this stuff was all stuff that I was told was effeminate and real men don't do. Getting to see somebody do that and be basically, yeah, like subversively told, hey, it's okay to exist outside of the... It wasn't even about that. It wasn't that I wanted to drink wine and sip tea. I actually don't, even to this day, I don't particularly like tea. But it was the freedom to be able to do that because why the fuck not? And I think that's one of the things where toxic masculinity is so destructive to men just purely in the form that it limits what we're free to enjoy and do. You're just, so many men are afraid to enjoy some basic pleasure of life on this earth purely because they've been told their whole life that like, oh, that's effeminate. You can't enjoy that. And it that's something deeply sad because life is very short and we only get to enjoy it once. And uh, there's, there's a lot of mixed drinks that when I was young enough to be drinking and stuff like that, uh that i never really tried 
uh, because I knew people would make fun of me for it being a girly drink. Um, I tried, I've tried many of them now at this point, and I like many of them, obviously, because they're meant to be enjoyed, uh, unlike whiskey, which is meant to be ingested, I'll say. Um, <laughs> uh, no offense to those of you who actually enjoy whiskey, uh, whatever the hell's wrong with you. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, for sure. I, I feel that one. There's, there's definitely been several things in my life that I have only f- come to enjoy a little bit later that now that I'm reaching an age where I'm old enough to like not give a fuck about trying to appear masculine or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think there were the next captain in order of, of chronological appearance would be uh, Benjamin Lafayette Cisco, the commander initially, I think eventually gets promoted to captain uh, of the space station Deep Space Nine, uh, which is also the subtitle of the series. Uh, this one's this this particular series in my ex- my individual experience, I have no like hard data to back this up. Just from friends I know that are into Star Trek is a bit of a contentious one. People kind of seem to either really love or really hate DS9. And uh, I don't, uh, I, I, I think it's because it's a very different direction for the series, which is prior to this point, been mostly exploring crazy edges of space and experiencing all kinds of weird new on previously here or heretofore unseen phenomenon and this one's much more about like it's sort of the series's first real exploration into the political realities of starfleet and the actual running of the more a more stable um you know it's it's not exploring frontiers it's running a space station at a spot that has a lot of political tensions going in on it uh and so it's a very different kind of environment there's much more a feeling of home in the setting where like people live there like not just like i work here on this like you know this long-term job where i have quarters and we go in a mess hall or whatever like where like we have lives here but like it's not my home my home is back on earth it's like this is where i live I have a house, we decorate it. My family has dinner together. Like, so do other people that live here. There's people from all different backgrounds that like, you know, stay and or live and and all that stuff. And it's a very different setting. So people have different reactions about it. But uh, I've always liked the character of Cisco, and he is also Star Trek's first black captain. Yes, and and you're right. He starts as a commander. He does become a captain, I think, when uh, the Defiant is added to the show, and, and which also gives them the ability to like travel around and do some more Star Trekky things. Um, I I agree. I I I agree that it's very contentious. I really enjoy Deep Space Nine. I think it's a fantastically written show. Deep Space Nine is one of the first Star Trek series that, for me, bridges this place where. I love film, like good TV writing, and I love Star Trek. Those two things don't always overlap for me. There's a lot of yeah. Star Trek that I think is really bad writing, but I love it. And there's, uh, and Deep Space Nine is one of the first ones I think that really 
reliably and consistently. Because, I mean, there's a lot of the next generation that's great writing. There's also a lot of the next generation that is horrible writing. Deep Space Nine is the first one that reliably bridges that gap. And I've heard a lot of people kind of refer to it, I think, often in a bit of a negative way, um, but I take it in a positive way, of referring to Deep Space Nine as the West Wing in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's valid because, yeah, you get all of these political uh, kind of things going on. Um, I, and I think New Space Nine played heavier into what I'll say a theme that we didn't mention, but Next Generation kind of started, which was in the original series, alien races were just kind of like uh, strange alien cultures for the purposes of an episode or, or whatnot. Like the the thing was meant to be more of like a campy adventure series that just happened to display a very progressive message on its face very obviously by having, you know, the characters who didn't, who were hundreds of years in the future and didn't give a fuck about what color skin or any of that stuff. Whereas like Next Generation started and Deep Space Nine really played into the usage of alien cultures to shine particular social lights on social aspects of humanity. So I think this might be something that I mentioned in the episode we mentioned Star Trek before, which is like Klingons being uh, used as a light to, uh, particularly through the lens of Worf, who sits on the line between Klingons and Starfleet, as he is a Klingon in Starfleet, um, is used to shine particular lights on toxic masculinity because there's certainly nothing you can walk away from the Klingons thinking except that uh, they're like warrior, hyper-masculine, like, like, like bro culture type, you know, things. Uh, and uh, certainly um, Worf's constant struggle between wanting to connect with his cultural upbringing and his recognition of the ideals and the things that he believes in in Starfleet and figuring out a way like how do these things mesh do they mesh at all like am I should I even like be or identify with my Klingon heritage like I feel like I should but it seems often at odds with the values that I believe in from you know being in Starfleet and like uh so Deep Space Nine really uh played into that very heavily uh, I think it would be a surprise, should be a surprise to no one that, like, for example, the Ferengi are an exploration of the effects of capitalism, especially juxtaposed with Starfleet, which is a moneyless communist utopia. So, like, uh, and, and uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, yeah, and I mean, in, in getting more specifically into Cisco, uh, yeah. in, in this one, we see Cisco playing the role as a father figure so consistently uh is he's raising jake and in and this is one of the uh you know handfuls of times that you get in uh television outside of direct sitcoms where we get to see a character grow up from being a little kid into being an adult as jake grows across the i think it's almost 10 seasons of uh deep space nine um so he you know goes through most of his childhood during this time and we see him starting to grapple with things and we also see Cisco acting as a father figure even for some like for like Nog and because uh, like there's this whole relationship there where Nog where immediately Cisco has some very kind of racially uh, xenophobically toned attitudes about Nog 
and uh, Jake has to kind of lead his father through the processing of that into coming to terms with that in a way that causes an immense amount of character growth for Captain Sisko. Uh, and then, of course, at the same time, we see Worf raising his son, uh, and, and we've uh, we've also got like you know the, all these cross relationship things. We get O'Brien uh, as he's uh, dealing with having a whole family of his own, and we see some kind of you know mixed uh, mixed bag of like things as uh, as different characters don't do as well. Uh, O'Brien at sometimes is kind of a problematic uh, husband figure. Um, and it, yeah, no, I, I I think there's a lot of really cool uh, moments of kind of exploring what masculinity means, what fatherhood means in Deep Space Nine. Again, because it's a space station, and we got a bunch of kids on it. Uh, even with but you know, even with the next generation, we have families on board, but we never, outside of Will, um, we never really see uh, that kind of like fatherhood relationship, other than. Get off the bridge, Will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, funny that you call him Will, since his name is Wesley. Yeah, 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 Wesley. Yeah, <laughs> Will is his real name. But I know name. why. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like almost like almost impossible to not just think of Wesley as just Will Wheaton. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Which is a good thing. For his sake, it's such a good thing that he broke. I mean, like, every time I see Data, like, I know the actor has a name, but he's Data. When I see him, oh, it's Data. Thank God Will Wheaton broke away from being Wesley. Yeah, by just being like the iconic nerd guy. Uh, yeah, so I, and one thing that I think is really interesting about Cisco in particular is that he is in a way a return to some of the older Star Trek in that like the captain here has a lot stronger of an emotional presence. You know, Picard is, while I think more emotional than he often gets credit for, not certainly not as emotional as Kirk. And Cisco is certainly more emotional than Picard, debatably even more emotional than Kirk, um, especially with anger as an emotion, which is a really interesting exploration. We've talked about anger in our one of our very first episodes, if not the first. Um, and it's an interesting exploration and it's sort of intrinsically tied with something that was going on in culture all the time because Star Trek DD Space Nine was uh, through the, you know, 1993 to 1999 was when it was being aired. And um, there was a transformation going on here around the angry black man archetype, which was previously used to as like a scaremongery boogeyman for racist shit. Uh, that was kind of being reappropriated through a variety of characters, Cisco kind of being one of them, where it was like turning this anger from a, uh, you know, sort of like violent, dangerous anger to a righteous and directed anger. It was anger at injustice, anger at um, people who are hurting and oppressing others who, who would stand up and say, hey, you can't do that. That's not right. And if you don't stop it right now, I will punch you in the face. Like it was that kind of like direction, which is an interesting thing. And I, I don't know that like as like a white guy, I have the the perspective on this to like really understand how Cisco fits into that larger narrative. But I felt I would be remiss in not mentioning it. Uh, but I, I don't really know that I have a lot to say about it beyond just like 
uh, it does return the captains of uh, the Star Trek series to a heavier or a larger emotional um, as a larger emotional character, uh, whereas Picard took it in a more stoic direction. Yeah, you're right. And I mean, we start we we start Deep Space Nine with the scene of uh, the Battle of Wolf 359 and uh, uh, Cisco losing his wife and, and saving his son and, and being this in, immensely traumatic moment. And if I remember right, the, the scene is even it is a flashback. I think that he's having or it might have been one of the visions that he sees while he goes to the wormhole either way to the point is that yeah like it begins with this trauma and it continues with this trauma and 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 yeah there's i think there is a lot to unpack there and what they were trying to do with the character and what they did do accomplish with the character um a criticism i've often had about uh, uh wharf was that um one of the few um I guess the actor, uh, the actor of Worf is black, and therefore Worf himself, even though he is Klingon, he also is, you know, like a black man as a Klingon, and Worf is a remissant and um, a remissant father who abandons his child through much of the next generation. That always irked me. It really, really irked mm. me that they did that, and I, I felt like that was like a don't, don't you know we we don't need we don't need that like uh i i shouldn't say we don't need that but like american like american society doesn't need that um yeah i'll i'll I'll, as a last bit on cisco for me i think like the last thing i think about him is like by far cisco i think one of the reasons that i like him so much and i feel like um identify with that character uh you know both like at a young age and at a even as an adult is partially because he is in a sense like the most human captain to date at this point in the history like picard is just or or you know kirk was just like pure chaotic neutral energy like wild kid doing crazy shit and picard was like a reaction to that of like you know very like strong and confidence and like assured self-assured whereas like uh cisco is both of those things and neither of those things he is very emotional not always self-assured he has a lot of self-doubt in the series he uh he does have some strong emotional core and when he is convinced that he's doing the right thing he will do anything to see it done like there's a lot of it but like he experiences a lot of like turmoil around his own like just being a regular person in a in a way that was like very relatable and like um one in which like it really felt like it was a regular person in a very complicated and difficult situation trying to do the right thing and um having all the emotions associated with being in a difficult position trying to do the right thing and i really always liked um his character for for being that um is is i always really loved deep space nine um yeah 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 i i agree with you um i think that kind of concludes anything i have to fill in on this set of captains yeah we uh just we have discovered uh that uh, we have a lot to say and uh, there's a lot of captains uh so we will be wrapping up here and we will 
uh this will gonna be our first uh two-parter episode two-parter. Uh, and we will continue the 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 discussion on star trek captains next week beginning with the first female captain Catherine janeway um which will be interesting to see how the female captain uh reflects gives us a reflection on masculinity but i think there's a lot of interesting things to say there and and especially going from janeway into captain archer who is definitely one of the most divisive opinion uh, mm-hmm. d- divisive captains that uh oh boy is there a lot to talk about when it comes to masculinity with captain archer too um and of course the fact that captain archer happens right during the hyper patriotic american period of you know right after 9-11 and while we're invading countries and needing to justify that through the media and generate um generate you know um consent manufactured consent so thank you all for joining us have a wonderful morning afternoon or any other time of day it is Live long and prosper. Life forms. You tiny little life forms. You precious little life forms. Where are you?